You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, this is the show where you'll hear about it first, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the experience of psychiatry, and also with, along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a mental illness and needing treatment for it, but without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And welcome back to the show. This is the December 10, 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Hope you've been doing well. And right off the bat, we're going to start talking about a study that found that, unfortunately, at least one in five of us are not doing so well. It turns out a study found that one out of five Americans lives with a mental illness. One out of five. And before we even get into the meat of the article, just taking that one little fact alone, what does that say? I mean, there's still this big difference in how so-called physical diseases are treated and diagnosed and looked at compared to psychiatric or mental disorders, and yet they're so common. Now, when is it going to be the case that people acknowledge and accept that mental illness is a very serious problem? It needs aggressive medical care the same way that every other disorder that gets such care is looked at, like heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, thyroid abnormalities, any of that. Well, in any case, last year almost 44 million adults experienced a mental illness. And, you know, there's not that much different from many Americans diagnosed with mental illness uh, that doesn't prevent them from leading a full and productive life with their condition. I think part of the problem is when you use the term mental illness, people automatically think of something extremely serious that would be completely disabling. For example, think of someone with schizophrenia or severe bipolar disorder with psychotic features. This is something that would render someone homebound or homeless or disabled. But to say that a person who has a home, has a family, has a career, lives a productive life, that they have a mental illness, some people have, well, not some people, most people have a hard time wrapping their brains around that. But it just goes to show you there are a lot of mental illnesses that can have a negative impact on people's life, but they don't cause 
the severity uh, or of disability uh, that fits the stereotype. A lot of people think of the disheveled homeless man or the person walking down the street talking to themselves. But that's not the true picture of mental illness. That's really only very uh, one very small part of it. Mental illness is it's your friend, it's your neighbor, it's the person down the street. It's not just a few people, it's a lot of people, and they struggle. In fact, uh, a government study showed that 18.5% of American adults had a diagnosable mental illness in 2013. The new findings are based on survey responses from more than 67,800 people, ages 12 and older, and reveals a picture of mental health that is vastly different from the stereotypes. For one, in about three-fourths of mental illness cases, symptoms do not significantly interfere with a person's life. Three-fourths, so 75% of the people out there with mental illness, it's not bad enough to interfere with their life. They're able to conduct and carry on a normal life. Now the highest rate of mental illness is among people ages 29 to 45. Uh, in that population, it's nearly 22% of that group. Uh, <clears throat> But let's take, for example, you know, let's go back to that comment that three-fourths of people with a mental illness don't have it significantly affect their life. Even someone with severe depression, for example, um, might, not, might or might not miss work because uh, of an episode of that. In many cases they do, but not all cases. Now... The study also confirmed what we already knew, that many people with any kind of mental illness don't get help for their condition. Of the nearly 44 million people with mental illness in the United States, about 45% received treatment in the previous year, less than half. Treatment rates were higher at about 68%, or just over two-thirds, among people with severe mental illness. So there's your difference right there. If the mental illness is severe, so that there is extreme disability and extreme negative impact on someone's life and functioning, then two-thirds of those folks get help not even three-fourths, but for everybody as a whole who has any kind of mental illness at all, less than half. <clears throat> Nearly 4% of American adults, 9.3 million people in total, had serious suicidal thoughts in the past year. Now, what does that mean, serious suicidal thoughts? Well, in a way, it's easier to describe what it doesn't mean Many, many people have had fleeting thoughts of suicide. Wouldn't it be better if I weren't here? Or 
if I were dead, I wouldn't have to deal with this or what have you. But the thoughts quickly dissipate and someone doesn't get to the point where they're actually thinking about what they might do to take their life and seriously contemplate it. It doesn't become a preoccupation where it's a frequent thought. That's what they mean by not serious suicidal thoughts. Now, 1.3 million people actually attempted suicide last year. <clears throat> and it's about 36, 7, 8,000 people a year that we lose to suicide during the, ta during the time it takes my show to air. Somewhere between three and four people will take their lives. Mental illness, therefore, it's a real health condition. And addressing it will help with all kinds of issues. But thus far, what we've learned from this article is it starts with people understanding that mental illness, which is, I mean, that term is so stigmatizing just by itself. Uh, and this is a big reason why people have a hard time accepting that there's something wrong with them. And on top of that, then you add to it the distinction between someone who has a diagnosable mental illness, but still functions, cares for themselves, keeps down the job, takes care of their family, etc. But people with mental illness also experience other more routine medical problems like diabetes, high blood pressure, and heart conditions like I was talking about before. But what's very, very important is for everyone to know that there are effective evidence-based interventions, social, psychological, and pharmaceutical interventions to help people deal with any mental health problem. The important uplifting message to get out there is that recovery is possible. And just because you have a mental illness, even if it's a serious one, it does not mean that you can't live a full life. With proper treatment and support, including from your family and community, which unfortunately is not always forthcoming, you can lead a healthy and active life. Now, if you are interested, <clears throat> in the next couple of minutes I'm going to be giving out some websites and some phone numbers in case you want to get a pen and paper, or if you're playing back the podcast, you can pause it here and go get it. But the article gives out some resources if you or someone you know is coping with a mental health issue. To find treatment or support resources near you, visit the Behavioral Health Treatment Services Locator to find local mental health services. And you can search by zip code and get a list of the different options available in your area. And that's findtreatment.com. SAMHSA, which is S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. So that's, again, find treatment, all strong together, dot S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. To improve your mental well-being on your own, 
There's Mental Health America's Live Your Life Well website, tips and tools to cope with hardship and stay positive. And also search for support groups in your community. And that's at mentalhealthamerica.net slash live hyphen year yours hyphen life hyphen well. Sorry, I'll say that again. I kind of butchered it. mentalhealthamerica.net slash live hyphen your hyphen life hyphen well. If you want to talk with someone and it's not a crisis situation, the National Alliance on Mental Health Information Line is 1-800-950-NAMI, N-A-M-I, 6264. Again, that's 1-800-950-6264. And you can find NAMI on the web at nami.org. Again, that's nami.org. Well, Have to take a commercial break here. We'll finish our thoughts on this. After that, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And right before the break, we were wrapping up an article about how one in five Americans lives with a mental illness. I was giving you some resources for help. Now, One of the more important ones is if you or someone you know has had serious suicidal thinking, there is a national suicide lifeline. That's at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-TALK or 8255, 1-800-273-8255. That number is staffed by trained counselors who will listen to you 
guide you through your situation and help connect you with local resources. That phone number is staffed 24-7. All conversations are confidential. So there is help out there, uh, and hopefully people will grow more comfortable with the idea that, hey, this is a very common thing. It's not just the homeless person uh, on the news or TV or in the poor area of the city. It's your friends, your neighbors, the people that you work with, the people that you shop with, the people you go to your local house of worship with. Uh, mental illness is everywhere. It's uh, a part of life just like many other medical problems. Things are getting better, but there's still too much misconception and stigma and not enough people getting help. Now, that leads us to this next article. All right, so let's say that someone does understand, yes, I really do have a mental illness. It may not have landed me homeless and in the street. Uh, I still have my house. I still have my job. I still have my family. But I do have a mental illness, and I am suffering, and I need help. And I should go see a psychiatrist. Well, why is it so difficult to get an appointment with a psychiatrist? Because if you didn't know, it is extremely difficult. Well, there are a lot of reasons why, but this next article talks about one of them in particular, and that's that there is a shortage of psychiatrists. There are far too few of us to take care of the need out there, and the need is tremendous. We just talked about this. One in five Americans is I mean, not even a fraction of the number of psychiatrists necessary to handle that. So this uh, article that I'm going to actually just read to you because it's an editorial, and it's so well written, and it so well articulates the problem related to why there are too few psychiatrists. I said, wow, this is really uh, such a good explanation of the issue that I wanted to share this with you. The editorial was written by Adam Brenner. He is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Vice Chair for Education in Psychiatry at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Okay, so here is a psychiatrist in an academic setting with uh, his opinion about why is there a shortage of psychiatrists. Mental illness is a major public health problem in the United States. Suicide alone takes the lives of 38,000 Americans each year. That's more than double that from homicide. Uh, folks, I want to emphasize that again. The 38,000 people in the United States who die of suicide each year, that's more than double the number of homicides. Medical and surgical patients who also have mental illness often experience worse outcomes. And yet, in the face of these glaring challenges, we struggle with an ongoing shortage of psychiatrists. 
Psychiatry, as it happens, is not a popular specialty among medical students. Only about 4% of United States medical graduates choose psychiatry. As a result, close to half of psychiatry residency positions in the United States are filled by international medical graduates, compared to roughly a quarter for general surgery or obstetrics and gynecology. Why is there so little interest in psychiatry? Psychiatry offers a lower income relative to the other specialties. Our health care system disproportionately rewards doctors for performing procedures as opposed to talking with a patient and prescribing a medication or a behavioral intervention. This means that specialties like surgery, dermatology, or cardiology can offer higher incomes because they involve more procedures. And as medical student debt has soared in the past few decades, potential income looms large for students deciding on a specialty. But there is a deeper problem. Mental illness remains one of the most entrenched areas of stigma in contemporary perceptions of disease. People with mental illness face prejudice in employment and in housing that result in real obstacles to fulfilling the basic goals of a functional life. And many people with mental illness internalize this stigma. They can suffer lower self-esteem, lower expectations, and a worsened prognosis for their recovery. The insidiousness of this stigma is such that it even infects healthcare providers. Physician attitudes toward mental illness, even after their medical education, reflect the general public's prejudice. As a result, patients with mental illness typically do not receive the same quality of care for their medical illnesses compared to peers without mental illness. This bias against those with mental illness within the healthcare setting can seem paradoxical. On one hand, there is the tendency to see those with mental illness as not having real diseases. By extension, one will hear casual asides to the effect that psychiatrists aren't real doctors. On the other hand, there is the idea that mental illnesses are particularly frightening and disturbing and have a potentially dangerous effect on those who work with them. A study by psychiatrists at Columbia University summed up this attitude by quoting one blunt student, working with crazies will make you crazy. It really shouldn't surprise us then that the stigma of mental illness has been particularly hard to eradicate. Mental illness attacks the very aspects of a person that differentiate us from other species and make us human, reason, empathy, and language. It also attacks those qualities 
that make us unique as individuals. Memory, character, the integrity of the boundaries between self and others, and the sense of a narrative built on choices rooted in authentic feelings. In demonstrating the fragility of these fundamental aspects of our identity, those with mental illness inevitably serve as disturbing and frightening others. In the light of all this, perhaps it is understandable that medical students haven't been breaking down the doors to sign up. But none of this is reason to despair. Attitudes towards some mental illness, particularly depression, do seem to be shifting as a result of education and the increasing openness of people suffering from the condition. There is plenty of evidence that learning about or meeting someone with mental illness can decrease stigma. During a recent election campaign in Texas, a candidate was attacked for receiving hospital treatment for depression years before. It backfired and was seen as a groundless and desperate ploy by his opponent's camp. And there is certainly reason to be hopeful that current progress in neuroscience genetics and epigenetics, which is how our environment affects our genes, will decrease our perception of mental illness as unexplainable. The mysterious nature of mental illnesses historically made these diseases more frightening and more of a blank screen for people to project their most disturbing fears on. Perhaps as we are able to explain more and more of the causes of mental illness, these conditions will not be so demonized. If we're going to make progress in recruiting the psychiatrists that we need, we need to make sure that students have plenty of opportunity to meet patients who are reclaiming their best selves in recovery from mental illness and addiction. We also need to make sure they can work with psychiatrists who are proud to work with people who are living with such disturbing and frightening but ultimately treatable illnesses. Well, I applaud Dr. Brenner for his excellent, excellent article. In it, he talks openly about how psychiatry is one of the least lucrative specialties financially, and with the problem of tremendous medical student debt, a lot of students will try to get into more lucrative specialties. And the, the thing I give him the credit for the most is he puts it right out there that there's a stigma about mental illness among physicians, never mind just the patients. If physicians look down on the mentally ill, how can patients uh, find the help they need and uh, accept the fact that they have an illness and need treatment for it. The stigma is slowly fading, but as he says, I think what's going to help is when science gives us more clear answers about the causes of mental illness and therefore points directions towards uh, better, more effective treatments with less side effects and uh, less uh, hit or miss results, that too will lead people to go into psychiatry more. 
All right, we're going to be right back after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peace Tree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even and offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. Just a final thought about the article I was talking about before the break as to the Reasons why there's such a shortage of psychiatrists and uh, specifically about the fact that it is expected, as Dr. Brenner articulated in his editorial, that when there are advances made in the way psychiatric illness is diagnosed and treated, really specifically what he's talking about is when it gets to the point that psychiatric illness is diagnosed and treated similar to how other illnesses are treated with the help of genetics and uh, laboratory testing, uh, more specific treatments which uh, will be more targeted and more successful more often, that I think will attract more students in medical schools to go into psychiatry Uh, because I think part of the reason students don't choose it is that it seems like it's so hopeless that there are so many people with psychiatric illness who don't get better at all. Uh, and uh, I remember some of my own colleagues in medical school commenting on that, and, and even uh, <clears throat> a cousin of mine who went to a different specialty um, you know, making a snide comment about, oh, so you won't be treating people who will get well. Um, you know, the fact is many medical specialties don't uh, have, have patients who won't get well. Uh, a pulmonologist has their patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD who won't get better. Um, gastroenterologists have people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis 
So I'm not saying this is a good reason for people to think that they shouldn't go into psychiatry. I'm just saying that's part of the stigma. There's a perception that uh, there's not enough to be able to do for uh, the patients to help them get well. And uh, when there are advances in the field, that will change. Now, another part of the stigma of mental health treatment is that it's not biologically based enough and so just talking to people, you know, is that really medicine and psychotherapy, which had been done by psychiatrists as well as lay people from the beginning? Uh, does it really need to be done by psychiatrists? Uh, there's still a lot of debate about that, even though it's been more than 30 years since the health insurance industry decided that, hmm, you know, we're not going to pay for a 50-minute psychotherapy hour done by the doctor, the MD, it's going to be much less costly if the psychotherapy is done by someone who's not an MD, let's say a psychologist or a licensed professional counselor. Uh, and so that's not a recent change at all. It's been going on for quite some time, but yet people still cling to the notion that the psychiatrist should be doing both medication and therapy. Now, while I don't do therapy myself, I definitely feel it's a crucial part of recovery from mental illness. And uh, if you take the analogy to an orthopedic injury uh, or a surgical procedure, you see the MD for the medical therapy or the surgery but then you have to see the non-MD to recover full functioning, to rehabilitate the injury or recover functioning. I'm talking about physical therapist, occupational therapist. That's where the real recovery happens. And so it is in mental illness where the psychiatrist prescribes the medication and the psychologist or social worker or licensed professional counselor does the therapy. Now, if anyone doubted the effectiveness of therapy, here's a study that says that just talk therapy, psychotherapy, substantially reduces suicide risk. <clears throat> you should talk to someone. could be the most uh, important five words that you say to a loved one who is depressed and thinking of suicide. A large study has found that talk therapy can cut the risk of suicide by more than 25%. Talk therapy, another name for psychotherapy, is a proven way to treat depression. The most common types of talk therapy are cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT for short, which focuses on how negative thought patterns affect mood. And then there's interpersonal therapy, which looks at how you relate to others. This study was published in the journal Lancet Psychiatry. In it, researchers analyzed Danish health data from more than 65,000 people in Denmark who attempted suicide between January 1st, 1992 and December 31st, 2010. Of that group, they looked at 5,678 people who received psychosocial therapy 
at one of eight suicide prevention clinics. The researchers then compared their outcomes over time with 17,304 people who had attempted suicide and looked similar on 31 factors but had not gone for treatment afterward. Participants were followed up for 20 years. That's what I would call a long-term or longitudinal study. That's a good period of time. The results? During the first year, those who received therapy were 27% less likely to attempt suicide again. After five years, there were 26% fewer suicides in the group that had been treated following their attempt. After 10 years, the suicide rate for those who had therapy was 229 per 100,000 compared to 314 per 100,000 in the group that did not get the treatment. While it isn't necessarily surprising that counseling would help prevent suicides, there had not been much research to support whether or not a specific psychological treatment is working. This is the first large, high-quality study to offer evidence that talk therapy can decrease suicide rates. And of course, much of the research done in mental illness is looking at the medications. Not enough research is done on psychotherapy. But now, there is evidence that psychosocial treatment, which provides support, not medication, is able to prevent suicide in a group at high risk of dying by suicide. The findings provide a solid basis for recommending that this type of therapy be considered for populations at risk for suicide and also make a strong case that there needs to be reform and improvements in terms of how health insurance plan cover uh, and pay for and reimburse psychotherapeutic treatments. Well, then let's talk about this next article. Let's say that you understand that you are one of those one in five people in the United States who have a mental illness. And let's say that you understand the value of psychotherapy in the treatment of mental illness and, as we just talked about, even the prevention of suicide. This next article talks about the next step. What kind of therapist and which type of therapy is right for you? Searching for a therapist? You're not alone. Millions of people see one every year, experts say, and countless studies show that therapy, which teaches patients strategies and tools to manage and resolve unhealthy behaviors and thoughts, is effective for treating depression, anxiety, and other psychological issues, and as we just talked about, for preventing suicide. Therapy can be administered by a range of mental health professionals. Psychologists who are specially trained in the study of mind and human behaviors, counselors 
who provide talk therapy but don't diagnose conditions or provide medication, and psychiatrists who are physicians that prescribe medication like antidepressants but are also qualified to do counseling. However, finding the right therapist is difficult, and perhaps an even bigger challenge is trying to decide which type of therapy you should receive. There are countless therapists, not to mention myriad schools of thought in psychology. All too often, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the options. So the article provides a few tips on how to find a therapist, along with an overview of common types of therapy offered by mental health professionals. Before deciding <clears throat> which type of therapy you want or which therapist you want to see, it's important to know why you want to go to one in the first place. What do you want changed? Or what do you want to come to accept about your life? Once you've identified the underlying reason you're seeking treatment, it's time to get specific about which type of therapy will work best for you. For instance, many treatments are based on diagnostic disorders. Do you have an already diagnosed psychiatric disorder like anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder? Are you depressed? Then you might want to find a therapist who's been trained in certain types of therapy that clinical studies have indicated are effective for those types of problems. Or are you more interested in an exploratory kind of therapy that will allow you to examine your past and present thoughts and feelings in greater depth? If that's the case, you might be interested in finding someone who specializes in that area. Once you've pinpointed your motivations and needs, it's time to start searching for a therapist, which can be difficult. I often tell my patients who've had difficult experiences that it's like trying to buy a pair of shoes. You have to try several pair before you find the one that fits. All right, well, more on choosing a therapist when we come back from our next commercial break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? 
All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We're talking about what kind of psychotherapist and which type of psychotherapy is right for you. Now, as far as finding a therapist after you've decided that you want therapy and which type, simplify what can be a daunting process by relying on word of mouth. Ask friends, family, or a trusted internist or family practitioner if they know of a therapist they'd recommend. Also, you can contact local universities with clinical psychology or psychiatry departments, or visit an online therapist rating system like the one offered by Psychology Today. There are also referral resources from your state society of psychology or psychological society, such as the one in Georgia. If someone has looked into the particular types of therapies practiced by a professional he or she is interested in seeing, that person might want to see if there's been any outcome-based research published in a peer-reviewed journal that shows the therapy's benefits. That could help him or her decide whether or not they want a therapist who specializes in a certain kind of therapeutic treatment. After you've narrowed your choices to a handful of mental health professionals, you can scope out at least three before making a final decision. And you may very well be able to and should try to feel them out via phone or an initial consultation to see whether their personality and skills mesh with your needs. It has to be a right fit or it won't work. It's also important to ensure that the therapist is licensed to practice in your state, receives regular professional training and has malpractice insurance. Basically, nowadays, you can look up and find things about anyone to make sure that uh, they're properly licensed and credentials, there haven't been uh, malpractice suits or uh, professional or regulatory sanctions that have been taken against them. Now, as far as the therapist himself, age, gender, and Availability are all potential factors, as well as special sensitivity toward issues such as sexuality and lifestyle orientation, for example. But the bottom line, if you've done all this and it turns out the professional isn't quite 
the right fit for you, don't settle. Look for someone else. Above all, it's important to ask your potential therapist lots of questions about his or her approach. Ask what type of therapy do they practice? How will this particular therapy help you with your specific problems? What will the treatment model be like? And how long has your therapist been practicing this model? And how many people have been treated successfully using this type of model? These are things that people most of the time don't ask, that they probably should. Individuals must decide not only which therapist they want to see, but also which kind of therapy they wish to receive. Many patients, however, often have no idea what to expect from their first therapy session. People tend to think of Sigmund Freud, a leather couch, and a long session of psychoanalysis when they first conjure up images of therapy. But modern therapy doesn't resemble its early roots at all. The field of psychotherapy has evolved a tremendous amount over the last several decades. And it's no longer a one-size-fits-all model. Multiple types of therapies exist, and they fall into various schools of thought, each with their own theories and techniques. Just as there are different types of medication or classes of medications for various kinds of depression, there are a lot of different types of psychotherapies that people will use to treat a problem. Still, there are two primary philosophical models of psychotherapy, psychodynamic and cognitive behavioral. Psychodynamic therapies focus on a patient's unconscious process by having that person talk freely about his or her thoughts or feelings and it aims to delve into past memories that might yield understanding of present problems. Now, <clears throat> subtypes of psychodynamic therapy include psychoanalysis. Okay, so psychoanalysis is a type of psychodynamic psychotherapy. It is a long-term therapy that patients can engage in multiple times a week. And then there's short-term psychodynamic psychotherapy, which has about a 20-session protocol. Now, contrast that with cognitive behavioral therapies, which are based on understanding one's thought processes or behaviors in the present and identifying how dysfunctional patterns in these areas may contribute to a larger life problem. By gaining awareness of these thought patterns, patients can work with therapists to change them. Cognitive behavioral therapies are more structured than psychodynamics therapies and tend to be shorter in duration, depending on the person's needs. A common form of treatment in this category is cognitive behavioral therapy, which blends cognitive and behavioral components. The cognitive side centers on how a person's thoughts influence mood or actions, while the behavioral part 
focuses on his or her actions and learning strategies to modify problematic behaviors. One of the working assumptions in cognitive behavioral therapy is that faulty cognitions and irrational ways of thinking lead to negative feelings and maladaptive behavior. If you modify the content and illogical irregularities of the flawed thought patterns and teach people to think about the events of their life in a more rational way, negative feelings such as depression and anxiety will decrease. Meanwhile, changing one's behavior and adapting positive coping mechanisms can decrease destructive habits and lead to an improvement in overall well-being. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the most widely researched psychotherapy and it's effective for people with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, mood disorders, bipolar disorder, phobias, and insomnia. The sessions are highly structured. The patient and therapist work together as a team to identify and change faulty thoughts and actions. And patients are expected to complete homework assignments when they're not in session. For example, keeping a thought record of negative thoughts, their context, and what triggered them. Another type of cognitive behavioral treatment is dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT, which was originally used to treat severely suicidal individuals or those with borderline personality disorder, which is a serious psychological illness characterized by unstable moods, behavior, and relationships. Dialectical behavioral therapy emphasizes self-acceptance and validation and teaches patients coping skills that help them control their emotions and tolerate stressful situations. It also places an emphasis on mindfulness or focusing on the present moment. <clears throat> Dialectical behavioral therapy is now used to treat a range of disorders characterized by emotional dysregulation, including eating disorders, substance abuse, and some types of depression. Treatment typically includes weekly therapy sessions and a once-a-week skill-based group therapy session and lasts from six months to a year. And then interpersonal therapy is used to treat depression. It doesn't necessarily fall into any particular category. Instead, it focuses on a patient's relationships and looks for patterns across different interactions to identify maladaptive behaviors. The idea is not that you're focusing on what's going on inside your head, but really what's going on between you and other people that is causing problems. And by improving the way you relate to others, it'll help treat your depression. Dialectical behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy also incorporate interpersonal skills training. Now, therapy sessions can be delivered in more than one way. Therapy is often one-on-one, -on -one, but therapists meet with couples, groups, and families. Group therapy makes sense if you want to be surrounded by like-minded, empathetic individuals experiencing similar struggles. 
Group therapy can also help patients understand how others view their actions or behaviors. It's great for character issues, things we do that are maybe offensive to others and we don't even know it. Couples and family therapy help facilitate communication between family systems that are dealing with disruptive problems, relationship issues, or emotional barriers. Now, this type of treatment can last for six months or a year or longer. And then there's the psychologists who practice in an eclectic way. This refers to therapists who apply a combination of therapeutic approaches with the recognition that a patient might need a more individualized, tailored type of treatment. However, you should choose a therapist based first and foremost on how good he or she is, no matter which types of therapy they're trained in. Therapy is essentially a particular kind of relationship between two people. One of them has certain knowledge and skills, but it boils down to how well the two people click and how good the therapist is in applying whatever techniques he or she has. And while I agree with their point about eclectic therapy, I think you also have to be on the lookout. Uh, eclectic should mean they use whatever approach is helpful or necessary for a given patient's issues. Unfortunately, sometimes it means that a therapist doesn't have a specific tailored approach and just sort of wings it, and that's something you don't want. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope that you found the information that I enjoyed bringing to you informative and helpful, and I hope that till we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.